Our gospel text today comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 48. Listen now for God's word. Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God of grace, thank you for your word. I pray that as we sit with it this morning, you would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to the message that you have for us. Amen. On the last day of my seminary career, in my very last course at Princeton Theological Seminary, I spent the afternoon opening packages of rotten cucumbers and shoveling them into a compost pile. It was dirty work, as you might imagine, and it didn't smell very good. And after three hours, my work boots and my holy jeans and my gardening gloves were speckled with sweat and manure and vegetable chunks. I was on the seminary's small-scale sustainable farm, affectionately called the Farminary, and I was part of a course that had to do with ecology and sustainability and food justice and spiritual practices. It was an incredible opportunity, and I was so grateful in my time at seminary that I could be a part of a class like that. After three years of seminary, the degree that you are awarded is called Master of Divinity. It sounds like something straight out of Harry Potter, doesn't it? Master of the Divine. I remember laughing to myself that day at the compost pile, thinking about the irony of it all. After three years of this intellectual rigor and intense study and spiritual growth and deep moments, the culmination of all of that, my very last day as a Master of Divinity student, I found myself surrounded by decaying vegetables and mud. I didn't spend that last day defending a thesis in an old Gothic building or preaching from a fancy pulpit or praying in a glorious cathedral. 
I spent it getting blisters from a shovel and doing my best to churn up future fertilizer. We have an image in our head of what is divine, of what is spiritual, and that image doesn't usually look like earthy or dirty or bodily things, does it? In our text today, we find these post-Easter disciples in a state of confusion. They'd heard the good news. They'd gotten reports from the women that Jesus was no longer in the tomb, and they had even gotten reports from the disciples who had been on the road to Emmaus and had encountered the risen Lord, but they still didn't quite believe it, or they didn't know what to do with it if they had a shred of belief. The way that John tells the story, the disciples are locked in a house together. They are fearful of what might happen to them if they unlock those doors. And in this house, I imagine them pacing back and forth and talking through the events of the past hours and really the past few years as they try to work it all out in their minds. Despite these reports that Jesus has risen, when he appears, they think he's a ghost. At best, maybe they think this is a form of Jesus that is a spiritual illusion. The spirit of their leader that they had followed and come to love, here as some kind of floating encourager in their lives. But Jesus speaks words of peace and of hope to them, and they sit there confused, doubting, but still engaged with a sense of wonder. In response to this confusion, Jesus offers his hands and his feet to show them. He asks for food, and he eats a piece of fish there in their presence. It's a moment of deep divinity, but it's filled with very ordinary things, and the disciples can't seem to reconcile it in their minds. As human beings, we often separate out our spiritual lives from the rest of our earthly existence, and we speak of body and of soul as two opposites as far apart as can be. When I was a teenager, a friend of mine invited me to her youth group one Sunday evening. And I remember this youth group vividly. They had a lesson planned for us around the importance of prayer. And the leader offered us a challenging question. And it was meant to be sort of a discussion question, but it was clear that he had a right answer in mind. He said, if you encounter a hungry, homeless, struggling person on the street, which is better, to offer him something to eat or to offer him prayer for salvation? Which would you choose? We had some conversation around it, but it was very clear that this youth leader wanted us to say prayer for his salvation is much more worthy. There was lots of pressure to answer in that way. He would say things, this youth leader, like, you know, one prayer can have eternal consequences, but a meal only lasts for a short while. Hunger always returns. 
This youth group was preaching a spiritual version of that saying, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. And in their version, pray for a man, and he won't need fish because he'll go to heaven. One of the other youth group leaders shared that he has little cards that he carries around with him when he goes out and about on the town. And whenever he encounters someone asking for money or for food, he'll give them one of these cards. And it said something like, I promise to pray for you. Money will come and go, food only lasts a little while, but I will vow to pray for you. The message I got from that youth group meeting was that spirituality is not tangible. It's not something we can touch, and it doesn't really matter here and now on earth. It has more to do with going to heaven when we die. Having our souls right with God is all that really matters. I never went back to that youth group. It didn't seem like it really mattered for my life. Christians have separated body and soul for centuries, flesh and spirit, heaven and earth. For many, the flesh is too earthy, too messy, too sinful, a barrier to the more important spiritual things. The body is like a liability. They're just a means to an end. As the popular saying goes, we are spiritual beings having a physical experience. And this line of thinking can be really helpful to a point. It reminds us that life is about more than just fulfilling our own bodily desires. It reminds us that prayer and an internal mindset is important. It reminds us that some part of us goes on even after our physical bodies stop working. If you've ever seen the body of a loved one after they have died, you know the feeling. It's them, but it's not all of them. Something from their essence is gone, even though their body is there in front of you. You can feel that difference. We are more than just our bodies. We are soul as well. But more often than not, Christians go to an extreme. And that separation between body and soul has become damaging. It has allowed us to overlook and even to do damage to bodies while focusing on invisible spiritual matters and only dwelling on hope that comes after death and has nothing to do with right now. Many of us are guilty of offering prayers only when the people in front of us need so much more. Something tangible like a hot meal or a bed or a shower. Something like an end to gun violence or systemic racism that kills based on instinct. The separation of body and soul, of earthly and divine, has done great damage. In that post-resurrection house in Luke's gospel, God builds a bridge between body and soul. 
God leads the disciples to belief through touch and through taste. He invites them to feel his hands and his feet, and he eats in front of them. A ghost can't do that. If the movies have taught me anything, you can stick your hand right through a ghost. Some people might be able to see it, others might not. It's kind of there and not, and it can't eat. As Jesus reaches out with scarred hands and takes bites of real food, he shows them that he's more than just spirit, more than just a fond memory, more than a feeling. I think we often forget the raw and sometimes grotesque physicality of our God. It's the physicality that we celebrate at Christmas with incarnation. And Debbie Thomas says it so well. She says that this God that we worship through Jesus is the one who grows in a womb enters the world through a birth canal, sleeps in a feeding trough, and nurses at Mary's breast. It's the one who scrapes his knees, rough houses with his playmates, loses his parents during Passover, and goes through puberty in the backwaters of Nazareth. It's the one who soaks in the waters of baptism, hungers for bread in the wilderness, weeps at his friend's grave, appreciates the scented oils on his feet and head, sweats blood in the garden, and suffers asphyxiation on a Roman cross. This is our God. When Jesus returns, it's not in symbolic, glowing, and floating body. It's not even in a perfect, beautified body that has six-pack abs and doesn't sweat or make any kind of noise. Jesus returned in a real body. Because for Jesus, the body and the soul always went together. He spent his ministry healing physical bodies and bringing about reconciliation and forgiveness in those bodies here and now. In the Gospels, this post-resurrection, Jesus presents himself in very ordinary, physical ways. Not in a booming voice or the presence of a dove, but in a scarred, hungry, real body. And he eats. Food is present, as we talked about in the time for the child in all of us. He eats so much that it's like he's part of a Presbyterian community fellowship committee trying to get people to always bring more food. God leads the disciples to faith through touch and taste and shows us that faith is meant to be embodied and not just felt. As people of faith, we are called to live in the earthly bodies we have been given and to care about the earthly bodies all around us. This has been a devastating week for real people in earthly bodies, particularly bodies of color. We've watched the news of police shooting Dante Wright and Adam Toledo, and we recognize that these are not just sad situations, these are not even just tragic situations. 
the violation of these bodies is a deeply spiritual issue. Our God shows up in a real body. And as Cole author Riley reminds us, we worship a Christ with dark and with scarred flesh. Bodies matter. Bodies are sacred. And we need to love the real bodies around us with everything we have, with our emotional selves, with our political selves, with our spiritual selves, and with our physical selves. When we see violations of bodies in our midst, God calls us to act, especially systemic violations that perpetuate white supremacy. That is spiritual work. Caring for aging bodies and young bodies and sick bodies is holy work. Screaming for justice when bodies are unfairly shot is holy work. Working for solutions when black and brown bodies prove twice as likely to die in childbirth is holy work. Tending to physical bodies is a form of gospel preach. Where might you be able to tend to real bodies this week? We are spirit and we are body. And we have a God that knows both. A God who came in a body that bled and scarred and digested and cried and got dirty. That last day of seminary, after shoveling compost for three hours, we sat together as a class, and we got around a big table, and we had a meal. We had some of the fruits of the farm, some tomatoes and some peppers, but we also all brought our own dishes from home. And we shared food, and we passed it around. We listened to stories. We shed tears for the end of this chapter of our lives. And then we washed the dishes, put away our tools, knocked the mud off our boots, and headed home. It was divine. In my closing prayer, I'll be borrowing words from Cole Arthur Riley and her black liturgies. Let us pray. Holy God, in the face of our deepest doubts, Thank you for moving closer. We're grateful that you are a God who is not made insecure or agitated by our disbelief, but who shows us great compassion and understands how difficult it is to believe without meeting you face to face. As we are confronted with the tragedies and traumas of our current moment, remind us that you are a God who came as Christ with dark and scarred flesh, that you invite us to see your wounds and to see the scars. Lord, grant that as we draw near to those wounds and to the wounds of those we love, that we might somehow in mystery touch your wounds and find belief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.